And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Episode 6 of Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman. I'm your host, Cliff Waldman. I am an experienced economist and somebody who has 15 years of experience, I'm proud to say, in manufacturing and manufacturing research. And it's been my honor to do this show. We're looking forward to a great sixth episode and many great episodes to come. Uh, in this show, we do what I've said we've been doing for weeks. We're looking under the, we're doing for the manufacturing sector uh, what the manufacturing sector does for the broad economy. We're looking under the hood and we're pushing the envelope. We'll talk about the headlines. We'll talk about things that you see in the paper every day and how they affect U.S. manufacturing performance. But we're going to go deeper than that. We're going to get excellent guests, and we've had excellent guests so far. We're going to help us look at these underlying structural changes in the very dynamic, very changing manufacturing sector. This is a very volatile time. Technology, global trade problems, political problems, all impinging upon the manufacturing sector, and we're going to cover them for you. In this episode, our sixth, we are going to do something a little different, but it's going to be something I'm going to do from time to time. I am going to take a little time, I will call it alone time with my audience. Didn't think you'd mind. In this episode, I'm going to give our wonderful guest a break just for a week, and I want to give the audience the benefit of my thinking on issues that matter greatly to them. There will be a few of them, but in this episode... I'm going to do something that is very important but very basic at the same time. Address the, the issue, what's going on with the global economy? Financial markets have been worried for a while about what the heck is going on with this global economic recovery. And you see that in trading on Wall Street. In 2016, we were celebrating. We finally saw a synchronized global economic recovery after many years of post-crisis malaise. That was a big thing for the U.S. manufacturing sector. After years of difficulty as a result of the, uh, the global economy finally becoming a tailwind instead of a headwind, U.S. manufacturing has been, has been doing better. It's been stronger. It's got a ways to go, but it's been stronger. But now we're starting to see some worrisome signs particularly, not exclusively, but particularly in China and in Europe. So we'll exp uh, I do a lot of speaking on the global picture, mostly for manufacturers, for manufacturing companies. And I'm going to give you the benefit, I hope, of certain insights today. Um, if you're listening to the podcast, my email is jcweco at aol.com. And I hope if you have questions or issues or things you'd like to argue with, Please send me a note after you listen to today's episode. Okay, let's go back to 2016. Year, I, I speak frequently on the global picture, and for years after we uh, manufacturing technically bottomed, after a 20% peak to trough decline, we were, you know, we were seeing malaise in the global economy. It was a little bit better, but not much better, and no real synchronized recovery. Finally, in 2016, we had a synchronized recovery, and it was really a thing to behold. We forgot what a global economy that was working for businesses, for U.S. manufacturing, actually looked like. 
I'd hoped it lasts, but there are signs of, of difficulties uh, right now. It was not a particularly a, a particularly strong global economic recovery, but it just felt so good because it was synchronized and it was real. Global trade activity was a big part of the crisis that befell the world in 2009 and 2010. We had a more than 10% decline in the growth rate of the world trade volume of goods and services. I am comfortable in saying that nobody who is listening to this podcast will ever see that again in their lifetime. It was a once or twice a century crisis. But now, while trade activity has gotten better, it is still moderate and is being, of course, impinged upon not just by economic forces, but by political forces that are weighing against the rapid globalization that we have seen in past decades. So it's a complicated problem, and right now it's, it's keeping the global recovery moderate and is, is really preventing it from weighing against the difficult regional issues in China and in Europe. Let's take, before we get into regions, let's take a look at two indicators that I often use to just tell me, to give me the temperature, the barometer of things. One is energy prices, the other is the dollar. Energy prices really had a slide in 2014 and 2015, as I think most of you know. Started to recover, but then towards the end of last year, really had a fall again, although they've, they've leveled out right now. Now, if anybody remembers, there was a time in economics class where you would say that falling energy prices are good. And markets should react positively to them. It's like a tax cut for the consumer. But in years past, we have seen where falling energy prices tend to scare markets, tend to scare the stock market. Now, why is that? What, 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 what has changed about the psychology of energy prices that we don't like falling energy prices? Now, they do indeed put more money in the, um, the pocket of the consumer. Lower prices at the pump are a good thing, but there's two other things going on. Number one, the United States is a net exporter of energy. We have a very different energy picture, and the share of energy-related um, output in the U.S. manufacturing sector has been growing and growing. So energy prices have a different meaning to the U.S. economy as a whole, even apart from the consumer. Secondly, some markets are taking falling energy prices as a signal of deflationary pressure in the U.S. and perhaps even the global economy. Deflation has been a fear ever since the crisis has hit. What does deflation mean? It means a fall in the average price level, and it's economically pernicious as Japan. When average prices are falling, it's a deterrent to consumer spending because you'll wait. That coat, that vacation, that lamp you want to buy, I'm not going to buy it today. I'll buy it next week. I'll buy it next year because it'll probably be cheaper then. And if you're a business, you don't want to invest in, a, in growth or even start a business in a deflationary environment because not only will you have no pricing power, you'll have negative pricing power. So, you know, the, this weakness as of late in energy prices, it's pri while it's partially a supply issue, there was an oversupply, there's some sense that it's demand, too. And if demand for energy prices is pulling back, well, what's going on with the global economy? 
Now, let's talk about the dollar. Very important to U.S. manufacturers. I had a long conversation with um, several management of companies in, um, in the manufacturing sector on this. We have seen more than one instance, and this is certainly one of those instances, where the U.S. is the strong economy in a weakening world. For that, we get the dubious prize of a rising dollar. More people want to invest here, so the dollar rises. Rising dollar has its benefits, lowers input costs, imported input costs, of course. Puts takes the pressure off the Federal Reserve. It's not. It takes the pressure off any inflation we might see, but it's terrible for U.S. manufacturers who need to who want to sell their goods overseas, and that's a growing share of U.S. manufacturers because you can't because all of a sudden you have a price disadvantage. Your goods are more expensive in Japanese yen in euros, etc. So you do all that great work with Lean and Six Sigma and, and, and very professional production processes, then the dollar kills you. So we've been seeing a rising dollar, which is a, a hit on the head to U.S. manufacturing competitiveness, given that the U.S. remains a relatively strong economy, but certainly a relatively strong economy in what is now appearing to be a weakening world. Let's talk about a few regional issues. Brexit, of course, is in the news. Brexit is weighing uh, for, for all the complexities, for all the mysteries of what's going on politically with it. It's clear that it's weighing on the United Kingdom outlook. And forecasters do not see a particularly strong short-term outlook for the U.K. economy, and that's, that's not a surprise. What has surprised me in terms of the way forecasters are thinking is why they're not more worried about the Euro, uh, the Euro economy because of Brexit. Brexit in the forecast has certainly impacted the UK economy, but the Euro economy they they kind of you know they kind of divorced European weakness from Brexit. I think that's a mistake because you're pulling to, uh, apart two entities that have had. 43 years of very rich trade and foreign direct investment linkages. I think that Brexit is a bigger risk for the broad euro economy than forecasters are thinking. Right now we're seeing European weakness. Germany is showing weakness. It shouldn't be. So the European economies by itself are showing that even on this 20th anniversary of the euro, we're not entirely sure if it, if it's going to work, and I do not know if yet another easing of monetary policy by the European Central Bank is going to do it. We need structural re- reforms in this area, and those structural reforms are, are you know uh, are are may not even do it because Brexit is really, I think, hurting the outlook for the European economy as much as it is just for the U.K. economy by itself. Let's get to China. China much in the news. We know about the trade fights that we are having, that um, the United States is having with China. The confrontation, many say it's an inevitable confrontation. Okay, I will agree with that. But what people don't seem to understand is that that is not the only thing. It's not even the primary thing that has been slowing Chinese economic growth. Chinese economic growth has been slowing since 2011. 
persistently. Now, in some ways, it was a very easy forecast to make. There is no way that an economy is going to keep growing at 8 or 9%. The slowdown was inevitable as China matures. But also, it's China's difficult demographic situation that is causing a, a, a slowdown really to hit with a, a real brute force right now. China has often been said by people who follow it to be an economy that may get old before it gets rich. And this is something that I have been a, – a, a discussion that I have been involved in both in terms of um, presentation and publishing papers on, on, on the area of China's aging. It's aging faster, and it's older on average than the Asian economies. Ten years ago, it would have been thought to be ridiculous to be talking about labor shortages in China. But we're seeing those now, and it is impacting China's long-term growth. So yes, tariffs, the trade fights, those things are negative. But they're not the main thing that is slowing China down. This is a fundamental demographically driven, and frankly, inevitable slowdown in China. And it is something that is very much affecting the many U.S. manufacturers who have invested their outlook. They have invested their profitability in China. And U.S. manufacturers are going to have to adjust to a different China. In coming episodes, I will bring guests on who are going to talk about that need for adjustment to a changing China. It's a big topic for the boardrooms of U.S. manufacturers. What's interesting is the comparison to India. I don't think India gets enough discussion. India, right now, India's economic growth over the next few years, this year and next, is forecasted to be faster than that of Chinese economic growth. Ten years ago, that would have been thought to be impossible. China number one, India number two. Now India is growing faster. And even more importantly, demographic projections are showing that by roughly 2025, not too long from now, India will surpass China to become the most populated country in the world. For that reason alone, I'm going to have experts in India on the show to talk about what India means for U.S. manufacturing fortunes. It's going to be as important a discussion as talking about the changing China. We have major shifts in the Asian theater of economic operations that have direct impacts on U.S. manufacturing profitability, profitability and we will be exploring them. Okay. In other the major developing economies, you see a steadiness, not, not a strong steadiness, but a, a steadiness. We've had a moderate recovery in Brazil. Brazil was flirting with its worst recession in almost 100 years. It's on a moderate recovery pace, but its political situation is always so treacherous that you have to sort of see a downside risk. And there are structural changes that are badly needed in Brazil. It has very low labor productivity. Russia, too, was flirting with a very deep recession 
basically on a moderate growth track, but with energy price weakness sort of, you know, coming back into the global picture, you have to say that there are downside risks for Russia, too, because it depends too much on exports of oil, uh, exports of energy, exports of oil and gas. gas. <laughs> Let's come back to North America. Mexico, for now, has kind of a flat-ish you know, uh, projection for growth. Mexico mostly exports the, – the lion's share of Mexican exports are to the United States and primarily for United States manufacturing, a little bit also to Canada. With U.S. manufacturing staying steady, perhaps slowing a little bit, it is not surprised that, uh, a surprise that forecasters see sort of flat Mexican growth in terms of projections, a little bit over 2% for the next couple of years. As of late, there has been some strengthening in exports, but it's not anything that is really going to juice the economy beyond 2% or so. Interesting contrast to Canada. Let's look at North America. Yes, flattish growth is projected for Canada as well. Canada has relatively strong consumer spending, but Global forces are weakening Canadian export growth. Canada has much bigger ties to the global economy than does Mexico. It's an, it's a, um, an exporter of commodities to China. It is an exporter of intermediate products to the U.S. manufacturing sector. And export pressures are pressuring, weakening business investment. In Canada. So between Canada and Mexico, in an uncertain, seemingly weakening global picture, I actually am a little more worried about the Canadian economy than I am about the Mexican economy. All right, come back to the United States with all this, with this not so pretty global picture. The latest data, and unfortunately, it's only from the third quarter of 2018. We don't have the fourth quarter yet. The economists of the Bureau of Economic Analysis are struggling to catch up after being out of their offices for five weeks. We wish them luck. It's understandable. We need those data. Quarter showed it after a number of quarters of reasonably strong growth that U.S. goods export growth suddenly took a big downward turn, a big contraction in the third quarter of 2018. Putting that together with this weakening, uncertain global picture, and you start to worry a little bit about how the globe is going to affect U.S. manufacturing. You wonder, is moderate U.S. growth, which is more or less what we've had, at risk for an unsteady world? For a while, we saw finally, after years, a good acceleration in the growth of business investment, of capital spending by businesses. But that's been weakening as of late. My guess, when we get that fourth quarter report for 2018, we'll see a further weakening of business investment. Other numbers have suggested that. U.S. consumer spending remains relatively strong. It has not been hit yet by global problems. That's a good thing for the United States because we are still 70% of U.S. GDP is uh, consumer spending. So we're insulated 
by what remained a strong consumer. We've, with modest rises in interest rates, we've seen both housing demand and housing supply soften, nothing that I would call worrisome. The U.S. consumer is certainly being supported by uh, a near 50-year low in the unemployment rate. And the, the participation rate, which has been falling both due, due to cyclical and structural factors, at least has leveled off. Uh, a low unemployment rate is pulling people back in, into the labor force, a good thing for U.S. manufacturers. But unfortunately, they're being stressed and pressured by a weakening world. All right. What we've seen in terms of actual U.S. manufacturing growth, getting down to it, is an improvement, but it's been kind of an uneven acceleration. What's the outlook? What, what, what are the numbers? The Purchasing Managers Index suggests forward momentum for the U.S. factory sector. They've come in above that 50% mark. I know many of you follow that important report. Uh, manufacturing Talk Radio covers it thoroughly, but it's staying above 50, which means that we're not in danger of manufacturing contraction, and it looks like manufacturing is going to stay in a growth mode, but my forecast is for growth to slow somewhat in the U.S. manufacturing sector. The data show that in 2018, we had 2.4% growth. In U.S. manufacturing, I think it's going to slow modestly to 2.1% in 2019 and to 1.9% in 2020. Why? A weakening world. That export numbers show that a weakening world is impacting the world's demand for U.S. manufacturing exports. A rising dollar pressuring competitiveness and I think the uncertainty of the trade fights and the whole, all the issues surrounding the tariffs are going to hurt manufacturing growth, but I don't see the U.S. manufacturing sector contracting in its growth. So it's, you know, it, it, it's a middle-of-the-road, good news, bad news picture. So a few conclusions. The U.S. economy is on track for slowing but moderate growth in 2019 and 2020. The biggest risk to the U.S. outlook um, is the same is that is the biggest risk to the North American outlook, and that's the global slowdown. Yes, trade tensions are playing a role, but the slowdowns in Europe and China are much deeper than that. They are very much related to fundamental structural factors. In Europe, it's the pressures of Brexit. It's the structural changes that are needed even after 20 years of euro to make the euro a sustainable economic model. In China, it is very much a demographic story, a little bit of having to clean up from the financial stimulus that it did in 2009. Credit quality is an issue. I don't see a financial crisis. It is primarily, though, a demographic story in China. I think the Canadian economy is more likely to be impacted by global stresses than the Mexican economy. And as for U.S. manufacturing, yes, it, the risks are on the downside. Yes, the world is a worrisome place. We, you know, we're not a, it, The world is no longer a tailwind as it was in 2016. It is becoming, I would call, a modest headwind, and we have to watch it. U.S. manufacturing growth is going to slow modestly in 2019. And 2020, primarily as a result of weaker global demand for U.S. goods 
and an elevated dollar. Okay, if you have questions or any issues, again, my email, jcweco at aol.com. I'd love to hear your questions. I'd love to hear you can send me suggestions for future shows. I want to hear from my viewers. I'll give you a preview of our next few shows. In our next show, we are going to have Kevin Swift, the chief economist of the American Chemistry Council. In the show after that, we're going to have Timothy Gill, the chief economist of the Iron and Steel Institute. These two gentlemen are among the leading experts in, in these two critical industrial areas of industry. We're going to uh, take those broad issues that we had for discussion in the early episodes of Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, and we're going to explore them with Kevin talking about the chemical sector, with Tim talking about the iron and steel sector. And again, I want to hear your suggestions for future shows. That's it for today. This is Cliff Waldman reminding you, as always, that manufacturing matters, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.